0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Do you ever feel like the world is spinning out of control? Amidst the world's chaos and growing opposition to our faith, economic hardship, and overwhelming challenges, we can find inspiration from the story of Elijah in 1 Kings. Despite facing an angry king, severe drought, massive opposition, and depression, Elijah lived a powerful and impactful life for God. Join us for our series, Elijah, as we learn how the same God Elijah served can use us to live a life of impact for his kingdom.
1: open to that passage, I would encourage you to do so. Maybe you have a phone, you want to just type 1 Kings 18 into the browser. We're going to be covering about 40 verses today, and I'm not going to be able to read all of that, so I would like for you to be able to see it as we kind of work through it. And if you think 40 verses, that's a lot, that's how I feel too. So I'm going to talk fast. We'll get through it together, all right? So um, how are you when it comes to making decisions? Are you one of those people that's quick and decisive? You know what you want. When the decision comes, you're ready to go. Um, Or do you tend to be a little bit like me and struggle with indecision? I tend to be one of those people that it takes me a while sometimes to make decisions. Um, There's reasons for that. Part of of my personality is I like to have all the information before I make a decision. So like if I go to the mall and I'm going to buy a pair of jeans, I just can't go in one store. I have to go in every single store that has jeans. It drives my wife crazy. She's like, just go in and pick one. You're going to get the Gap jeans anyway. Just go there. Like, no, what if there's a better deal at Old Navy? I got to check it all out, right? Part of it is I'm also deferential, so uh, if if I'm, you know, it drives Alicia crazy because when we go out, she'll be like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. What do you want to do? That's always my answer. I don't know. What do you want to do, right? So I just live in this space of indecision a lot of times, which is okay, but occasionally indecision can actually be a decision. For instance, uh, I remember one of my sons has my personality as well, so decisions don't come quite as easily. And when we were younger, uh, one of our little uh, motivational tactics with our kids in elementary school was if they got good grades, we would take them to five below and they could pick out one thing because nothing motivates education like cheap plastic. I don't know what it is. But it, but it gets them, right? And so we would go, and the first couple times we'd go, my son would just struggle with indecision. There were so many options, so many things. He'd wander around the store. We'd have the comfort. You got to pick something. You got to pick something. I don't know. I want this. I want that. He's got like five things in his hand. He can't figure it out. Finally, we got to the point, as a family, we were like, okay, here's the deal. We're going to go to five below. You have 20 minutes. When those 20 minutes are up, if you don't have anything, then you don't get anything. So you're going to have to make a decision, and inevitably, the first time, 20 minutes comes up, and he doesn't have anything. And we're like, well, sorry, you don't get anything. He goes, that's not fair. And we said, well, no, your indecision is a decision. You chose not to make a choice. And there's times in our lives where to not make a choice is actually to make a choice. I think in a pluralistic culture, which we're surrounded by here in the West, many of people can struggle with spiritual indecision. We're instructed from the culture around us not just to tolerate other spiritual and religious ideas, but to see all of them as equally valid for our lives. And because of this, many people's spirituality that they adopt is, I don't actually have to pick one thing. I can just kind of pick pieces, parts from different religions, different ideas, different philosophies, and kind of infuse them together. And and if you ask them, it kind of leaves them in a place of spiritual indecision. Now, that's not something that's just also true within the larger culture. That's actually significantly true within the church as well. In fact, in 2022, Lifeway Research did a survey on theology in the evangelical church. They, They wanted to get a handle on how do people think about God and scripture and all of this. And in that survey, the third question in that survey asked this It says, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. True or false? So the question is God, God accepts everything, right? Doesn't matter what religion you come from, God accepts worship from all. What that survey found was that 56% of evangelical Christians said that statement was true. Now, if you go broader with mainline denominations, the historic denominations in in our culture, Methodism, Presbyterian, that number jumps to 76%. So the majority of Christians in our world, when it comes to whether or not Christianity is true alongside other religious ideas and claims, says, yeah, they're all true. God accepts the worship of everybody. What's the difference? Why do I have to, to pick one? And so oftentimes we find that a lot of people live in the reality of spiritual indecision. But as we're going to see in our text today, that actually has some pretty serious implications for our lives. Last week, we kicked off this series where we're studying uh, about the prophet Elijah. And Elijah's story is found in the book of First and Second Kings. And Elijah was a prophet to the nation of Israel during a time when they had become incredibly pluralistic. They're led by a king named Ahab, and Ahab had married, his, married the Phoenician princess Jezebel. Phoenicia was the area just north of Israel at the time, and the Phoenicians worshiped a god named Baal. He was seen as the god of the storm or fertility and the rain, and when, Jezebel, when Ahab married Jezebel, they began to bring the worship of Baal into the nation of Israel. Even though God had told Israel from the very beginning, you will have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one on the top 10 list. And you're going to make no idols. Instead, Israel finds itself at this time worshiping another god alongside the Lord and making idols and temples to him. And so Elijah shows up on the scene in 1 Kings essentially to confront Ahab and the nation of Israel and to call them back to the worship of Yahweh. And we saw last week that Elijah's story begins with a confrontation. He shows up and he essentially says, it's not going to rain for three years. Because Baal was the god of the rain. He, He was the god of the storm. And as we saw, God shows that he actually didn't have power and provided for Elijah through that season. And where we left Elijah at the end of last week was he was actually living with a widow in Phoenicia, in Baal's territory, where God was providing for him. But as our text opens up today, God now calls Elijah to go back. Look what verse 1 says again. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in the land. So God calls Elijah now to go back to Ahab. And what we're about to encounter in chapter 18 is now a second confrontation that that Elijah and Ahab have. God says, I'm going to send rain. It's time to send rain, but I need you to go back and confront Ahab again. And there's a reason that there's going to be a second confrontation that we're going to see in this passage. Because as we see, the, the famine had gotten pretty severe, right? It says it's severe in Samaria, which is the capital of Israel at the time. And resources are scarce, but if God's going to send rain, this is actually going to create a problem in the rea- in the reality of His confrontation with Baal. You see, part of the narrative around Baal was that there ha- he had this kind of disappearing and reemerging element to how they worshipped him. Right? He-, he was the god of the storm and the rain and fertility, but in that area in the Middle East, there is a dry season and a Wet season or a rainy season. So part of the narrative around Baal was when it was dry season, Baal actually went into the other underworld. He disappeared for that season, and then he would reemerge every fall when the rainy season came to essentially bring rain for the crops and and to grow things. So this this was part of the narrative, part of how they understood the worship of Baal. So if Elijah's going to come and God's now going to bring rain, Already in the mind, there's a narrative that says, oh, well, we know how this works. Baal just disappeared a little bit longer than normal. Sure, it's been three years, but he was just in the underworld for a little bit more. And so you naturally can see that Israel is going to be confronted to naturally just go back and say, yeah, well, we'll just keep this kind of pluralistic thing going. We, we can worship Baal and we can worship Yahweh. A little drought, okay, we survived it, but now he's back and we're good. But Elijah actually shows up in this passage to confront that idea and to show, once again, the power of God over Baal. And it's in this passage that the reader is actually challenged to consider the reality of spiritual indifference and what it literally looks like to worship God alongside the claims of idols. In fact, one commentator on this passage Says this, he says, At its most fundamental point, this chapter is about the conflict between the true God of the universe and the false idols that human beings too often construct to escape the demands of the one who made us. So I I want to set you up a little bit for where we're going to go because it's going to help you see what we're going to unpack as we work our way through the text. The whole focus of this passage is to confront the reader on the conflict between what it means to worship God and the reality of the claims of false idols. Now, on a side note, I think when we recognize that reality, often many of us in our culture are prone to dismiss the lessons that this passage has to teach us because we don't think that we actually have an idol or idolatry problem. When we talk about idolatry or the the worship of idols, Our natural minds think, oh, well, that's something that primitive people did. Uh, Idolatry was something that happened back then, where there were, like, temples and sacrifices, and that was part of culture then. There's no such reality of idolatry today. But I would actually argue with you that idolatry is just as prevalent today. We're just more attuned to deceiving ourselves about its reality. Remember what idolatry is at its core. It's the claim of an ultimate reality to be the provision and the sole source of your life. It's the place where people found their identity, their satisfaction, their purpose, their sustenance. It is a claim that takes on an ultimate worth within the soul of the human being. That was the claim of Baal. Worship me, I'll provide for you. I'll bring rain. I'll provide for your life. I'll bring you the sustenance and meaning that you need. That's what an idol always is. An idol is something in our lives that takes on ultimate worth. It's the thing you must have and you couldn't imagine life without it. And when you recognize that that's what's underneath the reality of idolatry, you realize our culture is full of idols, Yeah, we don't go to the temple of Baal, but we worship the God of money, we worship the God of power, we worship the God of sex, of accomplishment, of self-actualization. We have these things in our culture that take on ultimate meaning in our life. How do I know I'm worth something in life? Well, check my portfolio, or my prowess, or the influence and power that I have. How do I know who I am or what I am to live for? What gives me direction in life? And what do I pursue with ultimate abandon? When you see that, there's a plethora of idols that we can have. Family can be an idol. You worship and we worship these things in our culture because we think they bring us the ultimate meaning in life. And so when we see that, we recognize there's actually a lot that we have to learn in this passage Because as Elijah comes to confront the idol of Baal, it calls us to confront and consider the idols in our life. And what we're going to see in this passage is we're going to learn three things about the nature of idols and four things about the nature of God. I know, that's seven points. That's not what's on the back of your bulletin, but hang with me because I think it's important. The first thing that we see in this passage in the reality of idolatry is that idols actually corrupt our lives. They corrupt our lives. So Elijah's called to come and confront Ahab, but almost immediately in the text, we're introduced to Ahab going to a servant of his named Obadiah. And what's noted about Obadiah is that he's a God-fearer. He worships. He's solely focused on worshiping God. His name, actually, and names are important in the Old Testament, his name means servant of Yahweh. That's what Obadiah is. And he set up at the very beginning, in contrast to Ahab, to show you the corruption that's taken place in Ahab's life. He's noted as doing what was righteous, that then they were slaughtering the prophets of God in Israel. He actually rescued them. He serves God. He's faithful in the moment. And I'm not going to go back and and reread all the text that Evelyn read because we have a lot to cover. But I think there's some things we note in this about the reality of Ahab and how idolatry had begun to corrupt his life. Remember, he's in contrast here to Obadiah, and he's the one who's instituted this pluralistic worship of Baal alongside Yahweh. So he comes to Obadiah and he says, hey, let's go out into the land and let's see if we can find some water and resources because I need to feed my animals. And so they go out, and they go out and look for it. But what's interesting here is that we note from the very beginning that Ahab, who's the king of Israel, who's meant to care for the people of Israel, from the very beginning, in the mass of a severe drought and storm, actually cares more about his wealth and livestock than he does the provision of his own people. So much so that he sends out his servant to say, can we take from them to provide for me? Because I need the care for myself. Ahab's noted as being harsh, right? Obadiah comes and he finds Elijah. And he essentially says, Elijah says, go tell Ahab I'm coming. And and Obadiah's scared. He's like, I can't do that because if you don't show up, he's going to kill me. I mean, that's a pretty harsh leader, right? Like if you get this wrong, you end your life. That's the point Ahab has gotten. And even in his rejection of Elijah. Not only that, he's completely lost his spiritual and moral way. I mean, it's noted here that under his wife and under his rule and reign, the very prophets of God are slaughtered. He's killing those that would lead the people in worship to Yahweh. And what's even more ironic about this is when Elijah does show up, look at how he responds. Now, remember, when we left chapter 17... The widow that Elijah was with, after the miracle of the raising her son, confesses and says, Elijah, I see now that you are the man of God. So we see Elijah as God's representative. That's the role that he's playing in this text. In verse 17, then, Elijah shows up and it says this, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, troubler of Israel? I love that term, troubler. Another way you could translate that word is plague. Is it you, plague of Israel? And I love Elijah's response. He says, I'm not trouble. I'm not the one plaguing Israel. But you have and your father's house because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Ahab, you're the plague. You're the trouble. You're the problem. Why? Because in your idolatry, it's actually corrupted your life in such a way that you've turned from God's ways. This is what idolatry does. When we follow idolatry, it corrupts. It corrupts our sense of right and wrong. It corrupts our sense of what's good. It corrupts our spiritual senses so much that when the prophetic voice comes, we don't submit to it, we reject it. The nature of idolatry is it turns us upside down and it corrupts our life. If you want a good illustration of this, I think we saw one in the news a few years ago. Do you guys remember? um, Remember the college admissions scandal that came out? Aunt Becky from Full House, she was like the lead focus of it. And there was this big thing where they found that these well-off parents had done some pretty significantly deceptive things to get their kids into prestigious institutions. Paying money, setting up false photographs, lying on their kids' resumes, all this stuff. And, and when you read that story, you're, you, you naturally come thinking, like, these don't seem like the worst people in the world. Like, how, how on earth could someone do all this stuff in deceiving people? Well, because they had an idol. They had made the idea that their kid getting into a prestigious university was the ultimate well-being of their life, that they would pay any cost to make it happen. So certainly I'll slide some money under the table. Certainly I'll falsify some records. Certainly I'll lie and push. Because when we have an idol, it corrupts us. It doesn't cause us to see what's right and wrong. And it causes us in many ways to actually turn from what God's word says. This is what idolatry does and don't think idolatry just in the culture this reality's in the church and we have to be careful of it there are leaders and pastors who use the backs of their people to build their own wealth and status who care very little for feeding the flock of god's people but instead want to use them so they can be well known and famous and they say it's in the name of ministry There's shepherds in our culture who are harsh and oppressive in their leadership, who domineer over their people. And unfortunately, sad to say, for much of the church, there is corruption in our morality to the point that what the Bible clearly calls sin, we not just tolerate in the church, we celebrate it. We put it front and center. Because too often we find ourselves in places where we worship idols more than we worship the true God. And when that's the case, it naturally has a corruptive effect. But it not only corrupts our lives, all those idols also compromise our faith. Look at verse 21. So, sorry, back up just a couple verses first. So Elijah comes and confronts Ahab, and then in 19, he calls for this grand uh, uh, confrontation. Now, therefore... Send and gather all, the, all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So just a couple things there. One, that's a huge table. The point isn't that they're eating. The point is that Jezebel is the leader. She's the one driving these prophets. But he says, come and meet me at Mount Carmel. Now, that's a strategic location. Mount Carmel is actually right on the border of Israel and Phoenicia. So it's right between the territories. So it's the perfect place for confrontation. And look what he says. He says, So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left, a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. And then he sets up. Here we go right? Here's, the, here's the, the confrontation. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Right, so they agree to the terms. Now, so note, Elijah shows up and he notes of Israel and he essentially challenges them. He says, how long are you going to go back and forth? How long are you going to continue to say, we can worship Baal and we can worship God? We can be a Christian and God accepts the worships of all the other faiths. I can be a Christian and then a little Hinduism, a little secularism, a little philosophy from other religions. I can embrace that. What's the big deal? And Elijah comes on, he says, how long are you going to limp? If God's God, he's worth all of your worship. Go all in. If he's not, then go all in on something else. You see, he knows that we as people will naturally worship whatever we make ultimate. The question is, what are you going to make ultimate? The problem when you limp between two is that it actually causes you to compromise. And it's the worst place to live. It's the worst. Because it causes us to limp in so many ways. Tim Keller notes of this passage, it it causes us to limp intellectually. To make the claim that all religions are valid and equal is so illogical, it wouldn't even pass a basic college 101 logic class. You cannot take claims that pit opposite realities against each other and then say both are true. A is not non-A. You cannot say Jesus is God and that someone else is. And so it leaves us, literally as a culture, where people say, the, I, I just, I'm just i like, that's not, that's not even basic logic. Like, I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just saying, like, it's reality. We've intellectually compromised to the point where we've watered down even the beliefs that other people have. Listen, if you have a different conviction, a different belief, let's have a dialogue. But, but I don't want to come at what you believe in a way that says... Well, it's all the same thing. That doesn't honor you. That doesn't actually lead to robust dialogue. That's intellectual limping. Not only that, it causes us to limp spiritually. It causes us to never be in a place where we're all in for Jesus or all out for Jesus. We're just kind of half in. Kind of like, ah, yeah, little Jesus, little this. Listen, if you don't think Jesus is worth it, then this isn't worth it either. Like, church isn't a fun game. There's a million other great things you can do with a Sunday morning if Jesus isn't worthy of your worship. So I don't, like, but we find ourselves waffling back and forth and I'll kind of show up and I'll kind of go. And and Elijah comes along and he would just say, just pick, just pick one. It's going to be better. Because the life you live in between, it's not great. I remember, uh, um, we took uh, my boys to ice cream uh, several weeks ago now, and uh, we were standing in line waiting, and we're talking, we're chatting, and no one's, uh, you know, like normal teenagers, they're not really paying attention. And we get up to the window, it's time to order, right? And, and I'm like, hey, if we got to order, there's people waiting, like, we got to go, right? That's, that's my personality. So we're like, get up to the window, and one of my boys comes up, and he's like, I don't know what I want. I'm like, well, did you look like at the menu? Oh, not really. Well, like, you got to, like, pick something. Like, just, he's like, oh, okay, I'll have this. So we like, get done. We're like in the car, or wherever, afterwards. I'm like, hey, how's your whatever I forget was? Um, and he goes, that's eh, mid. I'm like, of course it's mid. You, you had no clue. And so in the moment, your indecision was a decision. And you know what that left you with? Bad ice cream. <laughs> when we live in the place of spiritual indifference, it compromises our faith to the point where our lives are just mid. They're just, eh. We kind of eke through things, kind of making choices. Eh, this is okay. Little bit of this, little bit of this. And then we step back and we look at our souls and our hearts and we're like, this doesn't feel satisfying. This doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel like purpose. This doesn't feel like I have a greater cause to live for. And our lives become this mid, eh, because we're not willing to just make a spiritual decision and go all in. And at the end of the day, you know what that is? It's just idolatry repackaged. The text tells you it. You can see it. I'll show you. So look what happens. Verse 24. I'm sorry, verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered and catched this. And they limped around the altar that they had made. So the author is telling you exactly what he thinks intellectual and spiritual limping is when you live in the middle. It's just idolatry repackaged. That's all it is. When you say all religions are the same, you know who you're worshiping? You. Because you think you have the intellectual capacity to pass judgment on every other claim. You've put yourself as the idol in that circumstances. All spiritual limping leads us to the same place. It's just idolatry. It's just following after false gods. And we waffle back and forth. And the text says, no, when you do that, you actually compromise your faith. But not only does it compromise your faith, at the end of the day, it costs you your life. Now, this confrontation with Baal, it is set up for him to win. Whatever home territory is for him, it's set up that way. Remember, he's the god of the storm. And if you actually go back into Phoenician culture and you look at depictions, idols made or images drawn of Baal, he almost always has a lightning bolt in his hand. So if the challenge is let's set up an altar, put a sacrifice on it and th- 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 then your god brings fire, they're thinking, yeah. That's easy one. Yeah, maybe he disappeared for 3 years, that's natural. He goes underground, he comes back. Fire, we got that. And yet they're singing, they're dancing, nothing's happening. I love Elijah's response. At noon verse 27, Elijah mocked them saying, "Cry aloud or cry louder." For he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey. You're supposed to laugh at that. That's, that's genuinely funny in the Bible. Or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. I love a little holy sarcasm. Elijah's like, well, well, oh, he's not responding? Well, maybe just cry a little loud. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on his cell phone. He got a call. He's just got a chat. He'll come back in a second. Maybe he's distracted playing Candy Crush. I don't know what it is, right? But he's like, maybe if you just cry a little louder, he'll pay attention. Verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But catch this, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So the priests of Baal moved from this place of crying and dancing to crying louder to then embracing, literally cutting themselves as a sacrifice to their God, letting their own blood rush in hopes that he would answer and respond and provide for them what they ask. And what we realize is not only do idols corrupt our lives, not only do they compromise our faith, at the end of the day, idols cost us our lives. I mean, here you see the essence of idolatry. Work harder, try more, give more, sacrifice more, and maybe, maybe you'll get what you're asking for. Maybe you'll be provided. If you do enough, if you work, if you move, Idolatry always calls for greater and greater sacrifice of ourselves and our lives in worship to it in hopes that maybe it will provide what it never actually does. Baal never responds because he's not real. And neither is any idol that you pursue. Does it have the power to provide what your heart is calling out for? And I don't know how many times we need to listen to the voices of our culture who pursue to the extreme these idols and find them wanting. Hugh Hefner had all the sex in the world and at the end of his life said, I never found love. I watched an interview with Tom Brady on 60 Minutes after he won three Super Bowls. They said, which one are you concerned with? Which one do you love most? He said, the next one. Three wasn't enough. Six wasn't enough. More, more, more. Why do the richest people in the world never seem to have enough money? You couldn't even spend a billion dollars if you tried, and they're still not satisfied. Why do when we pursue beauty, we sacrifice our very essence of our lives to try to look the way that we can never achieve? You never have enough power You never have enough success. You can look, you you never have the perfect family. You never have the perfect relationship. And when you make that thing ultimate in your heart, let me tell you, at some point, it will call for your all. It will call for you to sacrifice everything. It will increase the cost until you've given everything to it, and it's precisely at that moment that you'll find that it offers you nothing, That's the deception of idolatry. That's why I care for your soul because what I don't want you to see is to see you live your life pursuing something that is false. You get back at the end of it after you've given everything to it and realize it didn't give you anything, but it cost you everything. And that's why we have to be careful when it comes to the idolatry of our hearts and what we pursue and what we give ultimate allegiance to because they will cost us our life at some point. But the text stands here in contrast to what the true God provides and who the true God is. And that's what's shown in the next several verses. So look what happens. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the lord that had been thrown down elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of sons of jacob to whom the word of the lord came saying israel shall be your name and with the stones he built an altar in the name of the lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two says of seed and he put the wood in order And cut the bulls in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know you, O God, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell. And consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God. So consider for a moment what the true God does in contrast to the idol. The true God overcomes disadvantages. Elijah invites the people, come near to me, come, come watch, come observe. And then he sets as if he wasn't at a disadvantage already, right? There's 450 Baal prophets, there's one Elijah. He says, let's make this harder. Go get me some water. I don't know where that came from, I don't know if people brought water with them. Mount Carmel's by the Mediterranean, they could have gotten it from there. But he says, bring me some water. In the midst of a drought, bring me some water and let's soak this sucker. So four buckets, three times, till the wood is wet, the offering's wet, and it fills up the trench around you. I don't know if you've ever tried to burn burnt or wet wood. Doesn't usually work very well. So the deck is stacked against God, and yet that's precisely when he shows up. Why? Why? Why does God always seem to show up right when the odds are most stacked against him? Because that's when we know it's actually him and not us. He's trying to point the people to say, there's no human explanation for this. I don't have like a secret kindling underneath that like somehow is going to catch this thing in a second. Soak this and let God show up. See, God loves to show up in our weaknesses. He loves to show up in our vulnerabilities. He loves to show up in the moment right when we think the deck is most stacked against us. So we know that at the end of the day, we're reliant on him, and it's not of us. That's the sort of God he is. But not only that, the true God here responds to faith. Note Elijah in contrast to the prophets. They're like dancing, singing, cutting themselves from the morning until the evening, calling for Baal to respond. Elijah prays one prayer that's a few sentences and the fire of God comes down. Because he walked in relationship with God and God responds to the person of faith. He moves on their behalf to show himself. And so we see in this picture God is not a God that is demanding your dancing and slashing in order to respond to you. No. He simply wants you to trust him. He is ready to respond. He's ready to meet you where you're at. He's not a God that's like, let's go, keep dancing. Uh, you're almost there. Cut a little deeper, give a little more. He does not require a sacrifice of you in order to give you new life because he's already given the sacrifice in his son. And so he just responds to Faith. Lastly, he's the true God, demonstrates his power. I mean, did you catch, like, God doesn't just, like, it's set up here, like, let the fire come and light this offering. Did Did you catch what happened? It didn't just burn the offering, it burned the wood and the rocks and all the water around it. God's like, it's not just enough for me to show you that I can burn up a little animal sitting on top of some wood. I'm going to show you my power and the reality of who I am. Because the true God demonstrates his power and his reality. He is not a God that's hidden. He's not a God of maybe. He's not a God of, I hope one day I'll see. He's a God that demonstrates his power, demonstrates his work in time and in history. And while here, on this mountain, he demonstrates his power before the nation of Israel, several hundred years later, he would give on a different mountain his most great demonstration of his power when he would raise his son from the dead. And he would declare that I am the God who... No one says amen. No, I got... No... Jesus' resurrection. Like, that's how asleep we are? Amen. Thank you. That God on the mountain would display the reality of his power by announcing that not even death can hold down my son. But it is conquered. There we go. So you can know that I'm the true God. So you can know that salvation is made available that you can know that death is not the end and that I'm not a God who doesn't hear you in your need, but I've made a way so you can know me and you can spend eternity with me. The historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus is the demonstration and validation of the claims of Christianity. Because God demonstrates his power. He doesn't leave you wondering maybe. He shows you it. And he showed you it by raising his son. And then finally, the true God returns his people to himself. The true God returns his people to himself. Did you catch the last part of Eliza's phrase? He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. See, he's the God of return. He's the God that works to draw people back to himself. That no matter how far our hearts might have turned against him, he's working for our restoration and return and demonstrating himself to us and pursuing us. Maybe you find yourself this morning caught up in idolatry. Maybe you've been pursuing something as ultimate in your life, yet you constantly feel it leaving you unsatisfied. The good news of the gospel is not only has God demonstrated his power in Jesus, but he's made a way for you to return to him, and he's inviting you back. That's why you're here this morning. It's no accident. He wants to demonstrate again to you his love for you that he wants you to return. That's the work he does. And that's what these people do. When they saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, he is God. He is God, right? They give their allegiance and their faith to him. And what demonstrates that? Well, verse 40, and Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now, I know that's not the happy, clappy way to end this passage. (laughs) I was like, I'll just stop at 39. That's good. But what this demonstrates to us is the people take it serious. And they make the choice. Because if you worship the God who is God, then you will make the choice to remove the false prophets and idols from your life. Remember, God had said, In his law, if you were a false prophet, if you would lead people away from him, then that was worthy of capital punishment. So Elijah is only enacting what was already written in their laws. They knew. And the reason God says that is because he knows, he knows he's the only one that can actually provide and satisfy for our hearts He knows that any other claim, any other religion, any other reality will always leave us wanting. It will always demand of us more than we can give and never provide for us what we ultimately need. And that's why he says, don't tolerate that. Trust me, I'll provide and sort of put our faith in God and said, yes, Yahweh is my God. Jesus is my God. I'm going to follow him is also the work of removing the idols and lies and false things that we have believed from our lives. Because at the end of the day, the Lord is the only one who can give life. And because of that, he's worth us giving everything and following him. And so, The text calls us to make a choice, and I think it calls you to make a choice today. If the Lord is God, follow him. If he's not, let's just stop playing religious games and follow something else. So I think the question I want to leave us on this morning is what God will you worship with your What's ultimate for your life? Are you settled in that question? Have you made Jesus your Lord and Savior and said, I'm going to follow him with everything I have? Or do you find yourself waffling in between and spiritual limping? I just want to give us a moment before we respond in worship this morning to just consider that question in our own hearts and let the spirit work. Are you settled in your heart on that question? What God will you worship? So maybe just take 30 seconds in your seat. I just invite you to close your eyes, bow your head, not to be weird, just to give you a moment and space to yourself. And Just sense in your own heart, am I settled? Am I settled? And what I've made ultimate in my life, what I'm aimed at, and what I'm giving everything to. Take 30 seconds and then I'll pray for us. God, we begin the service by reminding ourselves that you are the true God and the everlasting King. You alone are worthy of worship because you made us and you created us to be satisfied fully in you. And yet, God, we recognize even this morning, I recognize in my own heart how prone I am a compromise, how prone I am to put my trust in things less than you, how easy it is for me even to deceive myself. And I think we all have a tendency in our hearts to make idols out of things that we know will never satisfy. And so God, would you work to call us back to yourself right now? Thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ that covers our sin. <laughs> that always gives us the opportunity to return, that hearkens across time and space and even to this very moment, that you have made a way and done what is necessary for us to be restored to you. So let us look to him even in this moment, Lord. Would you help do a work now to settle our hearts? Help us to make a decision. Don't let anyone leave here unsettled. Even now as we just prepare, Lord, to respond in this song declaring how great you are, giving our worship to you alone. Would you use it as a moment for each individual, but even for us collectively as a church here in Farmington Hills to say, yes, yes, God is the Lord. And my allegiance, my purpose, my identity, my sustenance is from him alone, and my life is for him alone. So would you let us sing this with a focus on you and as a declaration to our hearts that our lives belong to you. Spirit, use this now and call us deeper into faith, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org to introduce yourself today.